Amen, amen. So in the same way Tim doesn't normally have a mic in his hand, I normally do. So if I'm doing weird things with my hands, that's just, we don't know what to do. Um, so thank you, Pastor Tim, for giving me a chance to, uh, to preach tonight. I'm super excited about this. God has worked a lot in my life just in getting ready for this. And um, I'm really excited about it. Um, you've made it. You made it. We made it through Christmas. Congratulations. You're here. <laughs> like, no, nothing went wrong. Well, maybe, but you're here enough. No one's in the hospital, at least at this point, if you're here. So that's good. And so Christmas season can be a crazy season. Uh, you're busy. You're doing things, uh, preparing, buying gifts, buying trees, getting family ready to come into town. Um, and in the midst of this whole whirlwind, it's also kind of a hopeful season. It's a season that a lot of us spend uh, with hopes uh, built into it. For some of us, our hope is just simply that we make it, that we make it through Christmas and we don't go crazy and take someone out. Um, for others, it's this year might be the year that he finally buys the ring um, and asks you. Uh, for others, this might be the year that your family finally gets along. Um, and for some people, that might be a laughing thing. And for some people, that might be a real deep-seated thing where there's a long history of just pain and hurt, and you're hoping that maybe this Christmas will be the year that it brings it all together. But on the flip side of that, as we're getting into this weekend and we're moving forward into the new year, um, there can be a tendency to kind of lose that hope, that kind of magic and hope of the spirit of the season goes away as you're packing up the Christmas decorations, as you're uh, putting away the gifts, and you realize that it's another year, and maybe Christmas wasn't as fulfilling as you thought it would be. The hopes that you had for the year didn't quite hit where you would hope they would be, and you still feel kind of an emptiness, a longing from that. And so when Christmas ends, um, a lot of us look forward to doing uh, New Year's resolutions. And so that's the next thing that we have hope in. It's the next thing we'll put our hope in and our faith in, that by becoming uh, better readers of Scripture, uh, we'll find more fulfillment. By being a part of um, a fitness club and, and losing weight and looking better, we'll feel some self-esteem that we've been looking for, that we're longing for. And so we just kind of continue to move through these seasons throughout the year, putting our hope in new things as we go along. And if we're really honest with ourselves, if we really think about it, it just moves from season to season and maybe a new thing comes in and a new thing goes but ultimately you're still left longing and hoping for something else. And so, then the question is with my uplifting intro there, what then can we put our hope in that won't fade? What is our hope? What should our hope be in? It can't be in the things that we've tried in the past because they haven't worked, so what do we put our hope in? Fortunately, I think scripture attests to that. There's lots of places that I think it does. Uh, tonight we're gonna look in Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 19, so if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and flip there. Um, if you're not familiar with your Bible, Hebrews is kind of towards the back end of it. It's after a really short book called Philemon, and it's before a book called James. Uh, if you've got the black Bibles, it's page 652. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, so Hebrews 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 19 is where we're going to start, okay? I'll let the flipping finish here. And as the last you kind of get there, let me give you a little context of what we're dealing with as far as Hebrews go. The book of Hebrews, 
as you can guess, is written to the Hebrews. They're Jewish Christians that um, are ethnically Jewish and have grown up following the law of the Old Testament, the uh, direction of the Old Testament, worshiping God in the way that's prescribed for them in the Old Testament, and have now come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and what it was looking forward to. And they're now facing this dilemma of trying to figure out how to balance living in this new era that's become reality as Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, and living in a world where there's still people who are living according to the Old Testament rules and laws, in a lot of cases probably family members. And so they're trying to figure out how to balance this and also try to figure out how to explain to their family and their friends and the people they've grown up with why suddenly they maybe aren't showing up at temple the same way they used to and why they're hanging out with these guys who were speaking weird tongues a while back and what's going on, why are you dunking people in water, that kind of thing. They're trying to figure this all out and trying to get to this. And so that's what this letter is for. This letter's written to Jewish Christians who are trying to figure that out. And so the first part of the book basically breaks down why Jesus is so much better than anything else that has come before and what will come ahead. Uh, it breaks down about why Jesus is uh, better than any priest that the, the Hebrew people have ever had in the past, why he's better than any prophet, why he's better than even angels and other uh, created beings, why he's supreme over all of that. The last half of the book talks about how you respond to that and what that means in light of this. And we're kind of in the middle of that book. We're kind of at the high point of it where the author kind of summarizes the first half and starts moving towards the second half right here. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look at the first verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. I'm going to stop right there. For us, confidence to enter the holy places may not resonate real strongly with us. It's not something that we think of. We might think of, of places that are revered or, or holy in a certain sense, but it's not in the same sense that these readers would have heard this word and how shocking this first statement would have been to them. For these people, when the author talks about the holy places, he's talking about the Holy of Holies, the central part of the temple, which is in Jerusalem. It's the entire central of the universe as far as Judaism is concerned about, as far as worshiping God. And so, real quickly, I kind of want to walk us through what the temple looks like, if you're not familiar with that, just give you an idea of what, what is going on here and why this phrase would be so shocking. And so, the temple was situated in Jerusalem, on a mountain in Jerusalem, and there are a couple different versions of it as a conquest had happened. When this book was written, King Herod's temple was still uh, intact. It hadn't been destroyed by Rome yet, so a lot of the things that I describe here were happening when these people were reading this uh, letter initially. But the temple set up is in courts. So there's going to be an outer court, inner court, and as you kind of move closer, you move closer to the presence of God. So the most outer court of the current temple that these readers would have been aware of uh, would have been as far as most of any of us could have gotten to God. It's as close as we could have ever gotten to God. The outer, te the outer temple court was where people who were not ethnically Jewish, who didn't follow the purity laws of Judaism, who hadn't been circumcised, the, the, the Gentiles, anyone not Jewish, that's as close as they could get to God, was this outer court. And there were Gentiles who would come, they're, they're referred to in the New Testament sometimes as God-fearing Gentiles. They're people who 
had heard of the God from the Old Testament and accepted that as the God who was supreme and came and, and feared and respected God, but were unable to completely engage in worship just simply because they were not Jewish. So that's the outer court. That's as far as most of us could get. The next court in would be where the Jewish people could come in, where they could, where they could come to begin to worship. This next court, um, imagine if you would, you're Jewish. This would be the court that you're coming to like with your family, with your spouse, with your kids. You would have had a couple um, doves with you, or you would have had a small animal with you as you were going forward to sacrifice, to do a sacrifice as prescribed by the Old Testament. This is the court where you kind of feel the anticipation growing. You can see the temple in front of you. You can probably see the smoke and the fire coming up from the altar as this is all happening. And so as you're walking up, you feel this great anticipation as you're drawing near to where God's presence on earth is. And so as you draw near and you draw close, you probably are going to have to get in line and wait as you prepare yourself to, to give your offering to the priest for them to, to sacrifice. So you wait in line, and you finally get to this point where the altar is. It's this huge bronze altar. It's constantly smoking. And this isn't like probably the most beautiful scene that you're going to see. It probably fills you with a lot of awe and fear because it's probably a really bloody scene. It's a scene where there's sacrifice going on all day as people come to offer their sacrifices to God and the priests perform these sacrifices. There's probably a significant odor that goes with that, with the burning of uh, these offerings as they're offered to God. The priests are likely not perfectly clean and white as they're dealing with this. It's not a um, beautiful scene. It's an it's a awe-inspiring, fearful scene. You're, you're met face-to-face, really, with what the cost is of what your own sin is. As you move past this court, you get to a place where, where not many people would get to go. It's going to be the temple itself. And inside the temple, there's a few different chambers. The most innermost chamber, this is the one that this author is talking about. It's the Holy of Holies. You might be uh, familiar with it. It's called that. Um, this was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. This was a room that was completely coated in gold. The floors, the walls, the ceilings, all completely coated in gold. Um, it would have been completely dark, and the entrance would have been blocked off by a huge curtain that would completely keep that area separate. That curtain was there for two reasons. It was there, one, to keep people from going into the Holy of Holies, but it was also there because it, in some sense, was how God designed for him to kind of restrain himself as a, on earth, a place where he could be a visible presence for the Jewish people without just completely annihilating them just by his presence. And once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Now, when this happened, they would actually tie a rope around the priest's ankle. And so when the priest went in to the Holy of Holies, if he, for whatever reason, had uh, unrepentant sin in his life, or for whatever reason hadn't followed the prescribed laws that he was supposed to follow, he would be struck dead just by the sheer power of God's presence there. And that's why the rope was around his ankle. The priest would be able to pull them out. And it happened. It would happen sometimes. Um, So this is the area that this author is telling the Jewish people who've grown up their entire life giving sacrifices to, you can confidently go into that area. That's a world-shaking, changing idea for them. Suddenly, they can go into the place where only one person could go, and only if they had followed every law that God had given them. And suddenly, they can move forward into this place. 
So the question is, how can we as believers, how could they as, as believers be encouraged to actually go into, enter confidently into such a separated place, into the place where the presence of God actually was manifested? If we continue in the verse, the end of 19, it says, By the blood of Jesus, the, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, again, there's a lot of um, kind of references back to the, the temple there, the curtain. Um, some of you may recognize that reference from the story of when Jesus is crucified, that when he dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two. That's the curtain they're talking about here. That's when this separation was no longer necessary anymore. That's when Jesus came and separated that. And that's what they're talking about here. By Jesus' blood, he created a new way to enter into the presence of God, a new and, and, and safe way to do that. And we are encouraged to confidently go into that, trusting in that Jesus' uh, work had done that. And that's really what faith is. Faith is having confidence and trust in knowing that what Jesus' work accomplished on the cross actually is sufficient enough to allow you to approach God and to be in the presence of God without just being completely annihilated because of the sin in your life. And there's a couple different responses that you can have that are opposite of faith sometimes when we approach God. Um, and one, just when you read this and you think of confidence, it may sound a little bit weird because it's talking, you might think confidence in sort of a self-righteous confidence, a, uh, a prideful self-confidence that you can boldly walk before God with your own pride, with your own um, accomplishments. And a lot of times I think that's, I think we, we forget that sometimes when we do that as in our Christian walk. Um, this is like the times where you might go before God um, and you feel really confident of going to God because you've been reading scripture so much, because you just helped that, uh, the person on the street and prayed with them and talked with them and bought them lunch. These are those times where you feel like, yeah, I can go to God. Look, look at all this great stuff I just did. I know for me the way this comes out is often I, this is where I kind of go, God, you owe me this. Um, this is the way I struggle with this. Um, when my self-confidence, when I go before God self-confidently, I go before God usually frustrated and upset because I'm not in a place in my life where I thought I should be. I am uh, frustrated at the fact that I'm not working full-time at a church, that I'm not able to spend my entire time doing ministry, and I'm working uh, other jobs and feel like I'm doing things that are taking away from what I know God's called me to do. And I come before God, and I'm like, God, you owe this to me. This is what I, I'm, I'm giving my entire life to you, and you can't even let me have a job that's my paycheck where I can do this. I spent all this time, all these years volunteering in church, running sound systems, and doing all these things. You owe this to me. That's how this kind of comes forward in me. And it comes forward in all of us. And you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of the way that you come before God that's confident, but it's confident in your own self-worth, not in what Jesus has done. The other response you can have, other than confidently going before God, trusting in Jesus, is you're going before God fearful and not completely trusting that what Jesus did was enough. And so this might be the other way where you're hesitant to spend time in prayer. You're hesitant to spend time speaking with God, trying to uh, be a, 
grow closer to God. You might avoid things like community group. You might avoid coming to church because what you've done is worse than what Jesus has done for you. That didn't come out right. What you've done is worse than the good that Jesus has done for you. That's what I was trying to say. Um, this is when you feel ashamed when you've made that mistake when uh, you're driving and, and said something about the guy that cut you off as like you've got your worship music playing in your car and you're like, ah, oh, and you change the radio station because it's like, I just don't want to, I want to pretend that I didn't uh, do that while I was worshiping Jesus. I mean, that's not, I've never done that. That never happens to me driving in traffic. Um, but those are kind of the two responses that we can have that aren't fully trusting in what Jesus has done for us. But the author of Hebrews is telling us that we can approach God confidently in what Jesus has done. And the reason we can do that goes on in verse 21. The author says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. And so here's the role that I think some of us forget about Jesus. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as king, as ruling and reigning on this throne, coming back. We can read in Revelation, like, Jesus on the horse with the sword and tattoos and, like, wiping Satan out. Like, we're like, yeah, Jesus, God, king, I got that. We have a hard time thinking of Jesus as our priest, as our pastor. We have a hard time thinking of Jesus coming alongside us and, and going before us into the presence of God. That's the hard part that we have, I think, sometimes. We think of Jesus waiting for us in the presence of God, sitting on his throne, looking down on us, where, in fact, he's going before you and coming alongside you to bring you into the presence of God through the work that he's done. Um, as I said, this is kind of the end of this section of, of Scripture, and some of you might recognize this verse. Hebrews 4.14, which is kind of the beginning of this section, the author says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, Jesus is our king. He's ruling. He's reigning from heaven. He's also our priest. He lived a life on this earth, 100% God, but 100% man. He experienced the temptations that we face. He experienced the sorrow we feel when we lose people. He experienced all the pain that sin brought into this world, but he lived without sinning himself. And so that's what makes his sacrifice worthwhile but it doesn't make him unable to understand what we're going through. So when we come before Jesus, we shouldn't come before him ashamed of what we've done, fearful of what we've done, because Jesus understands the temptations we've gone through. He understands the trials we've been through. He's not looking down his nose, shaking his head, being like, I can't believe, I can't believe you even dealt with that. Like that he doesn't know how hard it is to live in a world that's marred by sin. That's really the only thing we can put our hope in. It's the only thing that's going to be lasting and, 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 and going to stick with us is that we have a God who is both ruling and reigning but also alongside us, knowing what we're going through and yet still loving us when we mess up, when we sin, and giving the righteousness that he had by living a sinless life 
to us. Jesus as our priest, instead of offering a sacrifice at the temple, became the sacrifice because he was the only sacrifice that was worthwhile, the only sacrifice that would last longer than a split second. Can you imagine living in, a, in, in the world of Judaism? And this is happening as these people are reading this letter still. People are constantly coming to the temple over and over again to offer more offerings because they've messed up again. And it's never going to stop. It's never going to end unless they finally understand who Jesus is, until they finally understand that Jesus did away with all that by being a sacrifice that's worthy to cover all sin. We do the same thing now, though, because we try to approach God with our own sacrifices now. And it may not be to feel like we're forgiven for sin, although sometimes it might be, but it also might be because we're trying to make God like us more or to feel more loved by God. We can't bring our business accomplishments to God and burn them at the altar and have them be anything that, that fulfills our debt and what our loss is. It doesn't matter how much money you've made and how much money you've given away. None of that's going to work. You can't bring your relationships and your families to the altar and bring them to God and have God love you anymore or have God accept you because of what you've done with that. You can't bring them forward and say, look how well I've loved my family. Look at how well my children are behaved. Look at all these great things that I've done with my family. Look how well I've loved them. Those are all good things, and they're things we should go after, but they're not things that are going to save you. They're not things that are going to fulfill you ultimately. They all completely fall short of fulfilling us. And when we put our hope and our faith in those things, that we think that God's going to love us more, or Jesus is going to be more pleased with us with those things, those good things that God gives us become gods to us. They become the object that we worship. They become the the object of our fulfillment, that we think if we can do this and God will love us, then, then we need to go after this. And we focus, we turn our eyes away from Jesus and what he's done, and we look towards these things that we've done in our life. And that's when it becomes idolatry. That's when it becomes a good thing that has become a God thing, and no longer are you worshiping Jesus, but you're worshiping your stuff or your family or your things. And all of that is going to fall short. It's going to be insufficient as a God for you. Um, Matt Chandler says, it'll make a crummy God. And that's, that's what it is. I, I love Tara. I love my wife. She would make a crummy God. Worshiping her isn't going to fulfill the desire that God's put in me to be in relationship with him. And so, with that, the one thing I want you to remember, if you remember one thing tonight, if you walk away from one one moment, and this is the only thing that you remember, I want you to remember that the only thing that will ever bring lasting comfort and hope is in knowing that you belong to Christ. Let me say that again. The only thing that will ever bring lasting comfort and hope is in knowing that you belong to Christ. That's the only thing in life that's going to give you fulfillment, that's going to give you that hope that's going to last beyond the next season of your life. If as I say that, you don't even know if you belong to Christ or what that might mean, um, stop listening to me and start talking to Jesus. Jesus lived a life that we couldn't possibly live. He lived a sinless and perfect life. Jesus came, 
was 100% God and 100% man, lived a life we couldn't live. He died a death that he didn't deserve, that we deserved. And then he rose again, conquering death and making a payment for all of our sin. And so if you don't even know or trust in Jesus in that way, do that first. That's the, that's the primary thing, is trusting in Jesus to be sufficient, to fulfill the hope and the, the need you have for the hope in your entire life. For those of us who do belong to Jesus, sometimes we forget. That doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we've turned our back on our salvation. But sometimes we forget. We forget when we're driving in our car and the guy cuts us off that we belong to Jesus. We think that that guy belongs somewhere else and we're important, but we forget that we belong to Jesus. And so the question is, how do we remember? What do we do to make sure we remember that we belong to Jesus, that our only hope is in Jesus, that the only thing we can, can trust in and, and rest in is in knowing that Jesus owns us? There's three phrases that kind of come in this last section that are like let us phrases that I kind of think indicates the right response. So the first one's in verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first thing we need to do is just draw near. And that goes back to having that confidence in faith. Not a confidence in what we've done, not a fear of what we've done, but a confidence in knowing what Jesus has done. We need to continually remind ourselves of that and continually draw nearer and nearer to God. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in Scripture, not because Jesus is going to love us more, but because we'll get to know Jesus more as we do it. When we do that, sometimes um, we mix that up as um, doing things doing more things that look Christian. And while those things are good, that doesn't mean it's a drawing near. Um, drawing near to God is being honest about who you are and who God is and letting the Holy Spirit convict you of sin. It's letting you trust in what Jesus has done so that you understand how much you are loved. The more you understand how much you are loved, that's drawing near to God. That's what it looks like. It's not a physical thing. It's not showing more emotion um, when you're at church or when you're in prayer. All those things may come from that, but that isn't an indication of drawing near to God. Drawing near to God is understanding more and more each day how much God loves you. The second thing that we need to do, so first thing is let us draw near. The second thing we need to do is in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now, we can be sure of our confession of our hope. We need to be um, confident in our faith, not because of how strong we are. This doesn't say, let us hold fast to our salvation, or let us hold fast to our hope. It says, let us hold fast to our confession of our hope. We need to continually remind ourselves of our faith in Christ. We need to continue to remind ourselves of our trust in Christ and continue to remind ourselves that Jesus is holding us, not that we're holding on to Jesus. Because if it's up to me to hold on to Jesus, I can't hold on tight enough. 
I forget. I lose sight of those things. I get tired of struggling to hold on to Jesus. And in those moments where I get tired, Jesus is not tired. He still holds me. He still keeps me in the family of God. He still draws me near. Those are the times where we need to hold fast to our confession, where we know because of our faith in Jesus that we are held and loved by Jesus, not that we're holding on to Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says it this way. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The same Jesus that we trust in to hold us in our faith holds the entire universe together. The entire universe was created through him. He holds it together, and he holds us. That's the confession we need to hold on to. That's the hope we hold on to. Jesus holds us. We don't hold him. The last thing that we need to do is we need to consider. We need to consider. Verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews 10 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to consider how we can stir each other up, how we can help each other remember our place in Jesus. That's why the church matters. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we do community group, is to remind each other what Jesus has done for us and how much we are loved by him. It's not about doing it so that Jesus loves us more. It's about doing it so that we remember how much Jesus loves us. And so, yes, be a part of community groups. Be, come to church. Do those things. But when you're here, don't just do it for yourself but consider the way that you can bring others, that you can stir others up, the way you can encourage others and remind them how much Jesus loves them. When you see people going through hard things, remind them of how much Jesus loves them. When you see people who are depressed or frustrated, remind them how much Jesus loves them. Stir them up to do good works. We should encourage each other. That's, that's what the church should be. It should not be a place where we simply come and get beaten up and told of all the sins that we've done and how bad we are. Yes, we need to be reminded that we, that we do make mistakes and we are sinful, but we need to be reminded even more so that Jesus loves us more than that, that he loves us to the point that we should be motivated and, and excited to go out and do things to make his name famous, to make him well-known among our city, among our families, among all the people that we come in contact with, that we should be so overwhelmed by the love that we have that we can't help but go out and, and, and do good works and encourage others to, to, to come to meet Jesus. So that's what I want us to do tonight. That's what I want us to do here as we, as we wrap up service tonight. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. Do it remembering that Jesus loves you, that he's holding you. Let yourself be stirred up and encouraged by that fact. 
let yourself be excited in the fact that though some of the hope that you had from Christmas is fading and you're getting ready to make resolutions that you know those hope and those are going to fade in the middle of January, that Jesus is your hope and that anything that comes to you that's good is from him because he loves you. So with that said, let me pray and then we'll get up and we're going to worship, okay? Father, thank you so much for the fact that you sent Jesus to come to us to save us. Thank you that you gave us the Holy Spirit as a guide to us as we live our lives so that we can become closer to you, so we can know more about you, so we can be convicted of sin. Father, I pray this week, God, as we might be tempted to be depressed, be sad about the fading Christmas season, God, that we're reminded that our hope is not simply in one month of the year where we remember when you came, but our hope is in the fact that you came, you lived a life you couldn't live, and you became our great priest by dying on the cross. And when you rose again, you defeated death, you paid the debt of our sin, and you want to usher us into the presence of God. You're not there waiting to strike us down because of the sin in our lives. Remind us of that this week, God. Remind us that in everything we do, remind us of that when we get cut off in traffic, when we forget that we're supposed to be at work, when we go back to work to maybe jobs that we don't love. God, that we are held and loved by you, and everything else is not going to prevail over that. In Jesus' name, amen.